Dear listener, we thank you for joining us on A Pastor and a Priest Welcome to a Movie Theater. We want to give you a heads up that this episode will discuss difficult topics, including rape and racism and language and aggression and domestic violence. And so if this is an episode where those topics might take you out of a place of safety, we might ask that you consider skipping this episode or watching it in a time where you're able to stay safe and grounded. But we wanted to give you that heads up before we start this episode. A pastor and a priest walk into a movie theater. Hi, I'm movie geek father, Andrew Miller. And I'm cinema lover, Reverend Michelle Byerly. And this is A Pastor and a Priest Walk Into a Movie Theater, a podcast about faith, life, and the silver screen. Today we'll be discussing the 1994 neo-noir film Pulp Fiction. For those of you who have not seen it, this is one of Quentin Tarantino's works that gets a lot of critique about being violent, but has a lot to say about humanity. And it's also a lot of what you bring to it. So I'm excited to get jumping into this theological discussion. Are you ready with your $5 milkshake, Andrew? That's that's expensive even on in today's dollars, Reverend Michelle. I wouldn't spend $5 on a milkshake. It's milk and ice cream. They don't even right. put rum in it. Right? <laughs> no, uh, it, 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 it is important, I think, to say uh, from the outset that, you know, there are we're, we're Christians and, you know, there are a lot of Christians and non-Christians who object violent, right, I think rightly object to violent content within, within movies. You know, this is certainly a very, very violent film and contains not just violence, but a rape scene. Um, so, you know, if, if you plan on watching the film, if you haven't seen it, know that going into it, be prepared for it. There are definitely some some very highly problematic aspects of this film. And if you elect not to watch the film on that basis, well, I, you know, we, we certainly understand that. Uh, you might even also critique us for having watched the film and doing an episode on the film. And I, I, I think that, you know, that, that might be a fair critique. On the other hand, I also think that as violence is a reality in the film, violence is also a reality in our world. And um, although I don't believe that violence in and of itself is redemptive or useful, uh, I do think that it is, well, the task of theology to make meaning in the face of violence. And indeed, that is what theology of the cross does. Mm -hmm. So that's my initial reaction or reflection on the fact that uh, we're doing an episode on a movie that is quite graphic. Mm -hmm. Well, and what's interesting, you talk about this idea of making meaning. And to me, that is really kind of what the whole movie is about, is it is about making meaning of life, of purpose. The The term pulp fiction, mm-hmm. you know, they, they at the very beginning, they have a title card that breaks it down. And pulp is just, it describes it as a shapeless, formless mass. Mm-hmm. Fiction is this imagination and creativity. I'm not using their words, but, you know, it's, it's this idea of we, we use fiction to help put a mirror up to reality. Exactly. And so when you put those two together, what you're saying is this is a story about making meaning of life. <laughs> right. And it, the, the, the film is a pulp. It's a shapeless void, a, a, a shapeless mass that, that, that we then tell stories upon and project meaning onto. And part of the genius of the film and its ability to 
hold a mirror up to the viewer is that the meaning that you walk away from Pulp Fiction with says a lot about you. We were talking about this in, in one, of our, one of our discussions immediately after we had seen the film is that it may not be ethical to like this movie in the mm. way that you might like or be entertained by uh, a film like say a baseball movie or you know an insert movie there that's entertaining and, and nice and, and fun but uh is it possible to appreciate a movie without necessarily liking a movie now mm-hmm. I, I must admit that well i do kind of like this movie no i don't kind of i like this movie i've i've, I've always liked this movie um what does that say about me that i like a movie that is so intensely graphically violent what does it say about someone who who just refuses to watch the film, who Mm -hmm. refuses to engage with the reality of violence as such and attempt to make meaning in light of it. And what does it say when someone can appreciate the meaning that is or can be made out of such a film while not liking it or Mm -hmm. not choosing not to be entertained by it, but choosing to appreciate the metaphors that it supposedly contains? I say supposedly because I think to what extent are are we reading metaphor into the film and to what extent are metaphors contained in the film? That's, that's a big controversy. Yeah. It might help to just kind of go scene by scene and character by character a little bit. Is that as a way to organize our conversation today? I was kind thinking, of go from there. I was thinking character by character. It's very character driven. In fact, the fact yeah. since it, since it plays around with time, it doesn't, the, the plot doesn't proceed in a linear fashion. It, it really is far more character driven, but I and, I, and I would argue that everything centers around the character of Marcellus Wallace. Mm-hmm. So do we want to start there with that, Marcellus? That would, that's where I would want to start. Of course, if, mm-hmm. if there are any objections. No. So Marcellus Wallace is played by Ving Rhames. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have forgotten all of his other works, but he's he was well known in the 80s, 90s. He's a very good actor. And what's interesting about him is he's he's kind of made out to be this boogeyman, you know, this name that everyone kind of whispers with respect and awe. And then we kind of we see the back of his head. And then finally, we see him in this encounter with one of the other characters, Butch, I think, as he turns his face and it's kind of a holy crap moment. There you are. And and that's the first time we see his face. And then we see him in a much more vulnerable position yes. as time goes along. And so uh, it is an interesting arc that his character has where he's kind of behind the scenes of things and everything happens around him but then we do have all these other other characters so we talked about this i i see him as as the initial god character i really see this film as an expression of gnostic theology now in gnostic theology gnosticism is a very very complicated theological movement and it has a lot of moving parts to it i full disclosure, I'm not a Gnostic. I consider myself an Orthodox Christian. But part of Gnostic theology is this idea of a God beyond God. So you have um, the God of the Bible, prima facie, right? Especially of the Old Testament, but I think even of the canonical New Testament as well, the God that is, is presented on the face of the page of the Bible. And then you have the God that is beyond God, the God above God. And I see uh, Marcellus Wallace is is the God figure in the sense of being the God that is not beyond God, the demigod, 
who creates, who is responsible for creating in Gnostic cosmology, the fallen world. And on a lot of ancient Gnostic thought that demigod was identified with the God of the Old Testament, who I think is misread. I, I think this is a misreading of the Old Testament as being vengeful and 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 vindictive and and sort of a well a mobster and one who's quite willing to to use violence on on his enemies. And that's that's sort of how I see the character of Marcellus Wallace throughout the course of the film. He's the demigod. Except that the only real violence he uses or threatens to use is against those who have done violence to him. You know, you really don't see him committing other acts of violence on screen. And I actually want to go back to that point about violence in the movie. As I was doing some reading, what's really interesting is it gets this reputation for being violent, but most of the violence is off screen. We, it, we don't see it. And so there's for me, there's a very Hitchcockian element to that where we create it in our minds. And that adds a layer to this conversation of what does it say that we think it's a violent movie or that we avoid watching it or whatever our position is. And again, it's it's what are we creating in our mind? Sure. Now, on the other hand, though, what is on the screen is pretty graphic. I mean, Marcellus fire shooting Zed, the rape scene itself, the scene where they 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 shoot. Well, it's interesting on 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 the very very first scene where they shoot Brett, they they don't show a lot, but in the second scene where they shoot Brett gets shot in two scenes, um, they they show everything and and it's quite graphic. So and of course Marvin, the 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 scene where Marvin gets his head blown off is quite graphic, and you see a lot of brains and blood all over John Travolta. Uh, I'm, I, I find it odd how I'm laughing as I say that, and 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 that that scene itself. And the movie so... almost plays it for laughs. Exactly, it's and a... that's and that's kind of a you you feel the uncomfortableness of it's being played like I should be laughing, but I don't think it's right to laugh at this death, you know. It's and so it, it likes the movie likes to make you wriggle. It likes yeah. to make you a little uncomfortable. <laughs> Well, and the whole film is a comedy. It's 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 a dark comedy, the whole film. And and mm-hmm. yeah, you're absolutely correct. The the scene with Marvin, which is perhaps one of the most well done scenes in the entire film, is so interesting because it's it's so comical and yet so hor- horribly violent. And the character of Marvin is 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 just sort of a throwaway character. Like he's he he's even described by Winston Wolf as nobody who somebody who nobody who matters. Be missed. Nobody yeah, who'll be yeah, missed. Yeah. He's, he's entirely a throwaway and basically the it, well and, and there's no remorse or regret for having shot Marvin. They just have to get out of this situation that they're that, that they put themselves in by having shot Marvin before the before Bonnie comes home. Yes, yes. But you know, back to Marcellus. I mean, yes, I, I think that his th- there is a kind of anti atonement in in out now. I'm not trying to suggest that rape can be redemptive. It's not. There is a kind of anti-atonement in the fact that Marcellus is humanized in, in the way mm-hmm. that he is humanized. It, it, the, the atonement is, in a sense, a vindication of God's character. 
in this sense, it is a vindication of the character of the one whom we have throughout the course of the movie considered a kind of godlike character. In this sense, he is made to be human. And, and it's a sort of anti-incarnation and anti-atonement that God becomes human in the worst way possible and in, in the, the most horrible way possible. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And I was I, I was thinking about all of the characters in the movie. And for the most part, every character is made humble in some way, mm-hmm. whether it's Samuel L. Jackson's character. John Travolta is the one exception, sort of, that he wears the clothes, but he still doesn't want to accept the miracle which we, we've talked quite extensively about that. And so I'm thinking about it in terms of being made humble. And because he wasn't, he's one of the few characters that is straight up murdered. Yeah, he's made humble at the end of his life when yeah. Bruce Willis kills him. Yeah. Um, and I think that we're not exactly proceeding according to the flow of the film. And honestly, <laughs> that's fine because at the end of the that's day- That's the, the nature of the film. <laughs> yeah, the film doesn't have a flow, but- To me, the redemptive character in the film is always the one who is human, not the one who is identified as the God character. And that we see that in Vincent Vega's relationship with Mia Wallace, that Mm -hmm. Mia Wallace, I think, is a kind of divinity in the film. And this is said in two ways. She she represents, to my mind, uh, the the temple altar, because why was, was Antoine Rocamora who in this violence was also done off, off, uh, off screen, thrown off of uh, a building for touching her feet. It's a sort of violation of God's holy altar in mm-hmm. touching the feet of Vincent or, or Marcellus Wallace's spouse. And then there's this conversation uh, between Jules and Vincent over what constitute playing with fire And Vincent even uses the phrase, or no, not Vincent, Jules even uses the phrase holy of holies to refer Mm. to a part of her, her clitoris, so uh, that that it is the holy of holies. And so so, so she becomes a kind of altar character, and as well as being a temptress, as well as being a um, trickster, um, she is, in a sense, I think, a kind of Sophia character in, in, in um, uh, the, the Proverbs tradition, uh, if you read the Proverbs tradition through the lens of Gnosticism, in which uh, the Old Testament is not necessarily... Yeah, well, Gnosis means wisdom. Right. Or knowledge, really, but... But she is not the, the redeemer. Vincent is her. She, she doesn't redeem Vincent. Vincent redeems her. Vincent right. rescues her. E- even as uh, Marcellus is redeemed, well, not redeemed. That's, that's the wrong way to put it. Even as Marcellus is transfigured, humanized, humanized in his instance with Butch, uh, Bruce Willis's character, she, there is a kind of anti-atonement in the scene where Mia is saved by Vincent and Lance, the, the drug dealer. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's laid out in a cruciform pose. She's uh, stabbed. Pierced in like, the heart. Mm-hmm, much like the, the piercing of Christ in John's gospel. And mm-hmm. the result is, is not that God redeems humankind, but that humankind redeems this divinity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about Mia next. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Mia is played by Uma Thurman. And we've talked a little bit about her already. There is very much the sense that the first, she's definitely set up as this 
temptress. Vincent Vega even calls her a test mm-hmm. as he's looking in the mirror. And and she too ends up being very, very vulnerable. Yes. He's instructed to take her out, have a good time. And I just have to say, what would be more awkward than being told by your boss to take your wife on a not date? <laughs> it reminds me of she she honestly seems to be like the Hasatan character in Job. Mm. Now, Job, historically speaking, we often read Satan, the devil, into that character in Job, the Satan character in Job. But actually, the Hasatan character in Job is not the same as the devil, the Christian devil. The Hasatan character in Job is a is sort of a divine prosecuting attorney whose job it is to go out and test the servants of God. And it honestly seems like I read Vince uh, uh, Marcellus's ask of Vincent as a test of Vincent's loyalty, a very conscious test on the part of Marcellus of, of his loyalty to him and, and a test which, in, at least in the eyes of Marcellus, Antoine Rocamora failed, but which Vincent succeeds at. And it honestly seems to me like it's uh, like, like I could imagine a conversation bef- before Marcellus leaves for Florida between Vincent and uh, Mia in which uh, Marcellus asks Mia, so have you considered my servant Vincent? Mm. Much the way as God says, have you considered my servant Job? Sorry, Job. And that speaks to, to Vincent's character because Vincent, I know we're supposed to be talking about Mia May Culpa, but Vincent is, is the loyal soldier throughout through and through like he he very very seldomly has his little moments of of a lack of faith very little moments of a lack of faith but but he is loyal and faithful to the demigod through and through so he sort of I, in that sense i think represents the pharisees in the mm. gospels yeah so her big moment well okay so the most iconic scene we'll start there is them dancing at the at the restaurant that is like this car theme. I forget what it's called. Jackrabbit Slims. Jackrabbit Slims. And she and John Travolta are are dancing and all of this. And then they get home and she finds a baggie, mm-hmm. which she thinks is cocaine because it's bagged versus heroin, which would normally be in a rubber balloon. Mm-hmm. And all of this is nothing I know anything about other than just the not. background. But so we, read we up talked on it, about, didn't you? well, I read internet movie databases like my friend for kind of getting the backstory on movies. And, but we talked as we were watching it about this idea of consuming unworthily. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you talked about the motif of drugs having almost a a sort of eucharistic kind of quality to them in this movie they are sacraments drugs are the sacraments of the demigod yeah which make of that what you will but <laughs> it, it is it is the framework in which this movie happens and so she takes she eats the apple as it were unworthily What we're referring to is a passage in 1 Corinthians in which St. Paul is talking about the Eucharist, and he says that if you drink unworthy, if you take of this cup unworthily, you drink damnation to yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And and we're sort of seeing, so she she misuses the the heroin. Now, obviously, I don't know what I'm talking about either, but my educated guess is, is that, you know, heroin is supposed to be ingested using a needle, not 
you know, snorted. snorted. And right. so she snorts the heroin instead of, you know, you and she snorts a lot of it. You're only and, and you notice in, in the scene where Vincent is is taking his heroin, he's using a very, very, very little bit of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and also there's a very, very sacramental edge to that scene as he's put into a kind of religious trance as he approaches mm-hmm. the sacred altar that is Mia Wallace. But he uses just a, a least little bit of it. And she snorts a crap ton of it. And as a result is, is you know, her life is put in, in danger. So, mm-hmm. And then once they've walked through this experience together, their first instinct, and this is where there's, so there's that Eucharistic element. And then there's also the, again, going back to this Adam and Eve kind of thing, where their first instinct is, we're not going to tell Marcellus about this, are right. we? Right, <laughs> right. You know? And, and, and she says, I'd be in as much trouble as you would be. Which isn't true. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. Yeah, their instinct is to hide as Adam and Eve hide from God following the partaking of the of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which, but it, it's also interesting that Vincent's piety. Now, Vincent is fiercely loyal to Marcellus through and through to the point at which he's trying to stop Jules from retiring after Jules has his conversion experience. And we'll get to that in a minute. But on the other hand, his loyalty does take on and his piety, if you will, does take on a kind of instrumentalist edge to it in much the way I think as fundamentalist piety does take on a kind of instrumentalism, right? So, and, and what I mean by that is, is Vincent is trying to save Mia Wallace's life because if she croaks, he says, and I quote, I'm a fucking grease spot. He's trying to save himself. He's trying to hide from God, trying to hide from Marcellus because he knows that if if Marcellus ever finds out about this, he's a fucking grease spot, right? And he is fiercely loyal. And I think there's a genuineness in his loyalty. And you see that in the spot where he's trying to convince himself not to have sex with Mia. He's trying to say this is a, te- a moral test of one's character, right? And so, so he really believes that. But on the other hand, his piety, his loyalty is all about what he gets out of Marcellus. And I see this a lot in, in fundamental, well, in, in, all, in all sorts of Christians and, and theists. It's like, you know, our, our fidelity to God is about going to heaven. Our fidelity mm-hmm. to God is about avoiding hell. We don't want to become a fucking grease spot in hell. And so we appease the vengeful, vindictive demigod. Right. So I wanted to go back to Marcellus real fast. We missed the, there's been kind of this cult conversation around the significance of the band-aid on the back of his neck. Mm. Actually, he just cut himself shaving is, yes. is what happened. But we've made, there is a whole story and I did not know this. If you want to tell a little bit more. It has to do with the briefcase, what's in the briefcase. And of course, I happen to take Tarantino's uh, interpretation of his his own work in this one. I don't think you have to agree with Tarantino on everything he does about his own work. But in this case, I think that the briefcase is just a MacGuffin. There's really nothing per se in it, probably gold, probably diamonds, probably something mm-hmm. that Brett stole from Marcellus and that sort of thing. I don't really, but, but one of the theories of the film is that Marcellus Wallace's soul is in the briefcase. And that puts the, um, the characters of Jules and Vince in sort of the the place of being the sort of the righteous angelic avengers of Marcellus, uh, returning Marcellus's soul 
to him. And one of the, the thoughts was, is that the soul escapes supposedly from the back of the neck. And so the, the, the Band-Aid, which is entirely accidental to the film and, and the filming of it, is supposed to represent the fact that, that Marcellus has lost his soul and that's what's being returned to him in the briefcase. That's certainly one way of looking at it, but my problem with looking at it that way is that it leaves very little room for growth in the character of Jules and Vince. It, 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 especially Jules. I mean, it, at the end of the day, it turns them into kind of uh, uh, vengeful, angelic saviors. And, and I, I don't really think that's that's what's going on there. In fact, I think that at the end of the film, Jules really, especially really rejects his role in, in that way. Yeah. So let's, do we want to talk about each of Jules and Vince separately, or do we want to talk about them both or kind of a combination? Because I think in some sense they are very much together, but then there are some unique elements for each of them. There's almost a sense in which they can remind me of Bartleby and Loki yeah. in Dogma, which I hope we will do that one at some point. Saints Peter and Paul. Yeah. Uh, Vince is a is with Vince taking on the role of Saint Peter and Paul taking on the, the role of the more radical Saint Paul. And, you mean and, Jules. Right. Jules taking on the more radical St. Paul. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I really do think that that's St. That Jules really is St. Paul in a number of ways. For one thing, he has a kind of Damascus Road moment that opens his eyes to a new way of relating to not God Marcellus, but the true God. And the other thing is he says he will walk the earth as a kind of missionary. And he even performs as a kind of missionary for Pumpkin and Honey Bunny, uh, Yolanda and Ringo, the who I really think correspond nicely to Priscilla and Aquila from the, the, the New Testament, that sort of missionary couple that that St. Paul works with. And it's 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 interesting that Jules to me is is the one who really walks away from the film redeemed in the in the fullest sense of the of the term redemption is experienced i think by by characters like butch like like marcellus himself like uh, mia wallace uh, etc uh, throughout the course of the film i think largely through friendship and but uh, I, I think that it's it's really jules who i think walks away from the film with having really gotten it and having really decided that he's going to be a, a new person and reject the life of violence that he has hitherto led. I mean, if there's a real redemptive moment in the film, it is Jules's conversation with Ringo in the, the cafe. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that redemptive, that Damascus experience. Mm-hmm. So they're at this apartment I'm, I'm trying to put all the sequence together because this movie is definitely confusing. <laughs> yeah, it, they're, they're, they're basically the, the balance in Jules's story, Jules and Vincent's story, uh, uh, as they do Marcellus's dirty laundry, so to speak, uh, is, is really interesting. So the, they're at this apartment trying to steal back what Brett and his gang stole from Marcellus 
And this is when Jules first reads and, and the verse from Ezekiel, which actually isn't, isn't actually in Ezekiel. He says it's Ezekiel 25, 17. Well, all Ezekiel 25, 17 says is, and I will execute great vengeance upon them with furious rebukes, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. The uh, context is the Philistines. It has nothing to do with the tyranny of evil men, the path of the righteous man. And I use uh, exclusive gender language very intentionally here, the iniquities of the selfish or anything like that. There's nothing in Ezekiel there. The, 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 most of the passage that Jules reads is entirely made up, but it still nevertheless frames the movie. It says, the path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyrannies of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness. For he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children, and I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers, and you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon you. So that's that's what Jules says. Now, it's, it's, it's interesting that he says that, and then he kills Brett, Brett, the first person in the film who tries to fuck Marcellus. And, and it's funny, all the villains in the film in some way or another try to fuck Marcellus, try to screw over God, the God character in some sense. And, and of course, the, in the first scene, Vincent Jules especially takes on his role of being the avenging angel, right, to the, the one who who strikes down upon the enemies of God with great vengeance and furious anger. And then one of Brett's comrades, whom they didn't know was there, just bolts out at them, takes aim and fires with a, you know, basically a magnum. And he misses miraculously. There's no reason why he should have missed, but he does. And Jules takes this to be a sign, a kind of miracle, and his eye is open. Now, uh, to me, his, his, his conversion process goes through a standard evangelical conversion process, although with a Gnostic twist, because I think he, he ends up setting aside the demigod and embracing the true God. But he has his conversion moment when he realizes the miracle. He says of that, my eyes are wide fucking open. And by the way, I'm using cuss words because I think they're an integral part to the movie. And then he is baptized by... Winston Wolf, who is, yes. I think, John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. He is then clothed in new garment and he decides that he will go forth a new person and walk the earth. He even has a conversation, although it's Vince who makes the suggestion about repentance and, and Vince's words, it's a kind of cheap grace, but he has a kind of conversation with Vince over the idea of forgiveness of sins. So so for Jules, he has this kind of real conversion experience and walks away from the violent life that he's led. And I'm sorry, I keep going on, but he, he begins to look at the first part of the passage that he reads that's made up, not, not about the great vengeance and furious anger, but the, the path of the righteous man, the iniquities of the selfish, the tyranny of evil men, what it means to shepherd the weak through the valley of darkness. And he meets a second Brett in the character of Ringo or Pumpkin. And Mm -hmm. instead of shooting him, instead of executing great vengeance, he decides he's the weak one and decides to shepherd him through the valley of darkness by acting toward him in much the same way as the bishop acts towards Jean Valjean in Les Miserables. You forgot Mm -hmm. I gave this silver also. Would you leave mm-hmm. the best behind? Yeah, I've I've paid for you so that you can be free. 
I, I, I cry every time I hear that mm. um, that song. I, I've got to I've got to say it. I've got to say it. Sorry, Michelle. But remember this, my brother. My See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver that I've given you from a bad motherfucker <laughs> to become an honest, honest man, man. Uh, by yeah. the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood. God has raised you out, out of, of darkness. darkness. I have I've saved your soul for, for God. God. Yeah. And, and that, that to me is where the film really, I think, rejects the violence that it depicts so graphically and becomes, comes down really on the side of pacifism in much the same way as Star Wars comes down on the side of pacifism, despite it being an exceedingly violent uh, franchise. I'm sorry, I've talked a lot. I'm sorry about that. Well, it is the movie you picked. So, you know, well, it's a good movie. It, there's a lot of material to, to think about. So we've talked about Vince a little bit. We've talked about Jules. What about Butch, Bruce Willis's character? What's going on there? He's a complicated one because mm-hmm. on the one hand, he is he's one of the folks who are trying to fuck Marcellus Wallace. And yet he saves Marcellus from being fucked uh, in a very literal sense. It's very, very clear. He's very prideful. He's very arrogant. Indeed, I think Marcellus identifies his character dead on. The sting that you feel is pride. And that's pride fucking with you, right? And, you know, that relates to, you know, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Of course, it ends up working out quite well for Butch. Butch, to me, really corresponds, I think, to the biblical character of Jacob. Jacob, the one who has a kind of, who, who is not, a very morally perfect person and yet has a relationship with God that is at once both good and yet also, well, he's he's adversarial, adversarial, exactly. They'll wrestle with each other. Yeah, exactly. Israel, Jacob's, you know, renamed Israel, the one who wrestles with God. Um, Butch is the one who wrestles with Marcellus. Oh, and by the way, he's a boxer. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yet he comes to a sense of friendship with Marcellus. And, and that arc is an arc of redemption for, for both of them. Now, now when I say redemption, I, I want to be clear. One of the, the great things about this film, as opposed to, say, Boondock Saints, which we should also do at some point, Boondock Saints, I think, is supportive of the idea of redemptive violence, the idea mm-hmm. that you can, as a good guy, use violence to destroy evil. I don't think Pulp Fiction is. I think at the end of the day, the path of the righteous one is to walk away from violence for Pulp Fiction to its great credit. Well, no one in Pulp Fiction has clean hands. No, no. But there is a conversion for Jules and he walks away. Now, the rape is not redemptive. The violence is not redemptive. And to me, there's something to be seen there in the theology of the cross. It is not the violence of the cross that is itself redemptive, but there's something in the act of Jesus choosing to undergo it that allows Jesus to engage in in a kind of redemption. But laying that aside, the act of violence that is done to Marcellus is in no sense redemptive or just or good or holy or, or, or anything but horrid and bad. Um, and yet, and Christopher Walken says this at the beginning of, of Butch's scene, the beginning of the Butch's passage in the film of um, when you go through that with someone, you take on certain responsibilities. You know, mm-hmm. what, what, um, um, what Butch and um, Marcellus went through together changed butch 
from wanting to kill Marcellus to coming back and saving him. Coming back and saving him, I might add, um, when he could very well have just gotten away. It was it was mm-hmm. a selfless act in a very real sense because he, he he wanted to kill Butch at first and he wanted to escape Butch. And this was his chance. He could have gotten away. He could have gotten away scot-free and just let Maynard and, and, and Zed take care of, 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 uh, of, of uh, Marcellus, Marcellus. Mm-hmm. But instead he decides to return and for whatever reason, save Marcellus's life. Yep. And that is redemptive. And it's interesting how going through one of the one of the things that I was reading, and it's a fair read on it's a fair interpretation, is the that part of this movie is about the value and importance of friendships. Yes. You know, that um because Vincent becomes a sort of friend to Mia, he saves her life after having gone through this experience. Butch and Marcellus, Jules and Vince in some ways. Um, and, and so, and, and, and to me, it strikes me that as we're talking about each of these characters, it's harder for us to focus on the character as much as their relationships and yes. what happens in interaction with others you can't talk about the one without talking about the others yeah and and similarly it, each part of this movie doesn't make sense without understanding these other other pieces it's friendship that redeems the god characters the, the human mm-hmm. beings are not redeemed well yeah, they are, but 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 it's it's the the most powerful redemptions, with the exception of Jules at the end. The most powerful redemptions are the redemptions of Marcellus and 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 Mia, mm-hmm. um, and and the way I see it is is they sort of are set up by others, and I think allow themselves to be set up as kind of divinities. And they 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 are hubristic in that sense, prideful in the in the in the mm-hmm. ironically given how. Uh, Marcellus lectures Butch about pride. Um, they are prideful in 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 the the worst the worst way possible. And yet it is friendship that really saves them from their own narcissism and turns them into human beings in the truest sense of the term. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, because a narcissist has difficulty forming healthy relationships outside of themselves. Their whole world is themselves. And the others are users. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if I may, I wanted to talk about Lance. Yeah. Because Lance strikes me as the as the clergyman. Lance yeah. is the and priest. Lance is the drug dealer, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. And 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 it's interesting. I, I think his 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 wearing of a robe and and his beardedness is very very intentional. And long um, hair. Mm-hmm. long the long i mean he looks like the stereotypical what i call i i've heard it called the high school picture of jesus mm-hmm. you know this kind of like slightly side profile long hair the robe and he dispenses with drugs and as 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 a priest would dispense with the sacrament right mm-hmm. and and so he is in a sense a kind of anti-priest and it's it's very interesting he's anti-priest to to the core because he does not care about vents he does not care he certainly does not care about mia he's interested in protecting himself and covering his own ass and how many clergy people do we find 
in so many different denominations of Christianity and outside of Christianity who are just that. They get into it. We get into it because we love the power. We love the rush of being ministers of God. And yet when it comes to actually caring for people and walking the walk of what it means to serve and minister to God's servants, we, we, we fail. And because we only care about protecting our own assets. So. And then combine that with Karl Marx, who says that religion is the opiate of the masses, which is really interesting because what is he dispensing? Yeah. Opiates. Yeah. No. And, and that's so interesting. I mean, you, you, you combine philosophers like Nietzsche and Marx. You know, Nietzsche and, and Hegel are, are famous for saying, and Heidegger to a lesser extent are famous for saying God is dead. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and what they mean by that is not that God doesn't exist, it, well, although they, they don't think God exists, but that's 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 neither here nor there. What they mean by that is this idea of a God as something that human beings can look to for fulfillment and can manipulate in order to just get a better deal out of life is dead, that human beings do not need God anymore for existential fulfillment. In fact, we would hope that such a God does not exist because such a God, if he were to exist, would imply that there is a limit to human fulfillment. Marx's take on that is a little bit different, but in in essence, that is what he means when he calls religion an opiate. Religion is that which allows the working people who suffer so much to have a kind of release of their suffering. Right. But in, in a very Gnostic sense, and, and this is, I guess, I mean, I, I, I don't identify myself as a Gnostic. I identify myself as an Orthodox Christian. And by that, I mean that the God of the Old Testament is the one true God, uh, in my understanding, and that it is the God of Jesus Christ, that the New Testament is not divorced from the Old Testament. You have to understand them together. But there is ascension, which there is a God beyond God. There is a God beyond the demigod that human beings create. It's not Mm. the demi. There isn't an actual demigod that creates a false and bad reality that is rather the one we create it. Right. The one true God creates reality and it is good. Um, But the thing is, is that the one true God is not the God that you can manipulate the one true God is not the God that is the, the vengeful, uh, vindictive villain uh, that is so often, I think, misunderstood in the Old Testament. Um, that's not the one true God. The, the, the one true God is the God who, according to Karl Barth, is wholly other. And so at that point can't be manipulated and can't be um, uh, uh, appeased and, 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 and used in an instrumental sort of sense. And so to me, when Nietzsche and Heidegger say that God is dead, and when Marx says that religion is the opiate of the masses, uh, they're right. They're absolutely correct. They are 100% correct. That false God that fundamentalists have created for themselves is dead and good riddance. So what do you think about the women in this story? Yeah, so, okay, I I wanted to talk about this. So the the Bechdel test for movies is, uh, it was proposed by Alison Bechdel, and it's the the, the challenge, it's not exactly a great measure of whether a movie's exactly pro-feminist or not but it's simply are there two named women characters 
that talk to each other about something other than men. And what was really interesting to me is that this movie technically passes. There's a little bit of debate because part of the argument is that they're talking about sexual pleasure. And so is that more about men? But really, it's their own. Mm-hmm. And and so you have, I forget the, the two names. It's terrible that I forget the names of the women who passed the Bechdel test. But there's this scene. Was it, is it Mia and Jody? It's not Mia and Jody. It's Jody. But the, and it's so interesting that it's the set. I can't even remember the other woman's name. She is named. She, uh, uh, mm-hmm. Eric Stoltz's character, Lance, uh, mm-hmm. uh, names her. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but, but she is named and they do talk about piercings and they do talk about things other than uh, you know, men, but, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but yeah, they're, they're very, at least one of them is a very forgettable character. Yeah. So uh, we have basically four different women here. We have Mia, we have Jody, who is Lance's wife. And then we have, um, Butch's Babian. Babian. Mm-hmm. And and then um, Honey Bunny, mm-hmm. and they it, it it's interesting to me. Some of them are not the strongest characters. In other, and and when I say strong, let me rephrase that to say some don't have a lot of agency in that they have the ability to make decisions and affect their own outcomes, you know, particularly with, with Butch and, um, Fabian, Fabian, I, I, I forget her name and it's terrible that I do, but, and then Mia, Mia does pretty well. Um, you know, she's kind of a, she knows what she wants and she just kind of says we're dancing or, this or that but then she's also she also becomes very vulnerable which is not a bad thing you know on the Uh other hand they are archetypes Mm -hmm. i mean they they live into they they live into feminine to to female archetypes um Mm -hmm. so yeah there's there's um one who kind of nags one who kind of Jody, oh, I'm, the, tr- I'm, I'm trying to remember all, all of the ones that you've mentioned um, as we were talking, but yeah, they, they, it's interesting how. Well, so you have Mia who is a temptress, mm-hmm. who, who, whose job it is to test Vince and pull him off the path of a righteous man. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have um, Jody who is a nag. That's all she is. She's just a nag. She's useless yeah. in that entire scene. She's just a nag. Um, you have Fabian, who is a child, although there are some interesting lines that she has that suggest that she has a little bit more agency than, than she, she gives credit for, but she's still, at the end of the day, a child in an abusive relationship with Butch. Yeah, she's infantilized by Butch. Mm-hmm. And it's more what Butch does to her than who she is. Right, exactly. But there's also uh, Via, Lo- Via, Via Lobos. Um, oh, yes. Um, who is a witch. Mm-hmm. The, the cab driver. She's a witch. And um, she, 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 she's, she's very interested in understanding what it feels like to kill a man. Mm-hmm. Like, so, I mean, these, the, 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 these are archetypes. I mean, the, the male characters in the film are, 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 are... It's very much of a masculinist patriarchal movie. And, 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 mm. and, okay. 
Yeah, so. it's definitely a male gaze mm-hmm. point of view. Um, and then there's Honey Bunny. We haven't talked about Honey Bunny. Mm. And and she, uh, of all of them, she probably demonstrates mm, the most agency of the women. I or at least she has some level of it. She's almost kind of the one who suggests that they take the diner right there. I think you can make a case that it's actually her who is the uh, dominant one in that couple between, I mean, I know that, that what's his name talks a mm-hmm. lot. That's yeah. true. And he's like, uh, he's the one who's saying, oh, we're done, but we should try this place. But no, no, no. It's, it's, it's honey bunny who, who says, let's do it right now. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. It's honey <laughs> bunny who has a kind of uh, Harley Quinn yeah. lack of care about the uh, entire um, scene until, until um, pumpkin is Ringo is put in danger. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and so, yeah, I, I think you can make the case that it's actually Honey Bunny, who is the dominant one in much the way as Priscilla is the dominant one in the Priscilla Aquila mm-hmm. um, pair. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's definitely interesting. We, I, this kind of leads into the conversation. We talked a little bit about the patriarchy. We've talked about the language, you know, there's a lot of language that is used in here. That's very on its, on its face, very sexist, very racist. Um, you know, there's many uses of the N word. There's, mm. um, you know, just the, the way that, women are are portrayed in in some regard um or treated i guess Mm -hmm. and so i guess what do we what do we do with that i think the sexism is a lot worse than the racism in the film Mm -hmm. and what i mean by that is this at the end of the day the film is about the righteous man what it means to be a righteous man and I think it's 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 about that and and I I use the term man very very intentionally there right and so the men in the film are I think very very three-dimensional very very good characters and strong characters and 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 you know you could spend hours and indeed we've spent a long time like dice like going through and dissecting their characters and trying to understand them and they're very complicated um, but with the exception of Mia, um, the women are pretty much archetypes. And even Mia is an archetype, although you can mm-hmm. really kind of Well, there's that. almost, she almost runs into this risk of the virgin whore dichotomy to some extent. Yes. It, to the extent that, like, she's she's off limits and mm-hmm. she's the bosses and, and that. There's kind of this, and she wears white and mm-hmm. the vulnerability and, and all of that. There's almost kind of that virginal quality. But then, you know, she gets into the drug. She, uh, you know, the, there's almost a a little bit of a David Bathsheba kind of thing going on. I, 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 it's not an exact, there's a lot more to that story that I get frustrated with interpretations on as well. Well, David rapes Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. I mean, we often mis, 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 misinterpret David and Bathsheba as being an affair. It's not. It's a rape. David yeah. David sees he her. He sees her. He wants her. And she has no agency in it. Yeah. Um, but what I, what I, well, well, you know, it's interesting as I think about it, I think you could probably make the case that, um, you know, perhaps my interpretation of the women as being weak in the film 
is perhaps my own masculine, you know, patriarchal mas- masculinism, something that I'm very much so still in recovery and, and continuing in my own recovery from being a sexist. Um, and I, you know, I, I still fall off the bandwagon. I see them as weak, but you pointed out to me in our discussion of Fabian, how I, I, I refer to Fabian as the child, right? She's such a childlike character, but actually she's not. Cause she says she, she challenges Butch. She says, uh, she, she calls Butch a fuckhead. She, mm-hmm. she, she tells Butch what she wants. Um, but it's Butch who infantilizes her and, and even Mia, Mia, um, is actually quite um, worldly and quite intelligent, does what she wants and gets what she wants, right? Yeah, she and, runs the show. Yeah, and, and yet it's Marcellus who's protective of her. It's Marcellus who dresses her up in this kind of virginal white robe. But so if you look, you know, at first glance, the women in the story seem very, very weak and seem sort of kind of uh, to be this, you know, you know, this, what was it? The, the, the whore, um, uh, virgin, virgin whore, virgin yeah. whore dichotomy. But, in, and then you look a little bit below the surface and actually they have a, a great deal of autonomy. It's just the men in the story can't see that. And, I, as the audience of the story, can't see that at first glance. Isn't that interesting? Correction. You as the male audience. Yes. yes. I as the female yeah, Thank you. <laughs> That's why it's such a good thing that we have these different perspectives. And, and I'm, you know, here's the thing. I recognize the internalized oppression there, or not oppression, but internalized sexism as well. Um, so I'm not immune from it. Because, you know, yeah, it would be easy to, to see them that way. But I, yeah, I was kind of the one who said, you know, let's take a closer look because they actually are starting to claim what they want, mm-hmm. you know, and especially, like I said, for me, it was that the particularly the scene where they were talking about piercings, because here's here's an interesting fact in movies. Showing men's pleasure does not necessarily automatically get you an R rating. It might, but it not necessarily. Women's pleasure automatically does. Wow. Historically, in the in the motion picture and all of the ratings. So yeah, it's it's really interesting how we talk about women's pleasure. And Fabian is pleasured. Yeah. Takes pleasure in, in her sexual experience. She's yeah. not a child. She's not she's not a virgin at all. She's right. Yeah. She says, kiss me. Indeed, I think there are many ways in which um, Butch is a child. Mm. Butch is a is a very boyish character in ways. He's even introduced as a child in that conversation mm-hmm. with, between he and Christopher Walken. But he mm-hmm. he is a very very childlike character. He has a very very simplistic childlike understanding of his relationship with with Fabian and in a sense Fabian is the far more mature Uh, she may not be dominant but she's the more mature she's the one who can remain calm in a crisis whereas he goes nuts and throws televisions everywhere so yeah yeah and and yeah just the whole dynamic of their relationship makes me really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. or I am uncomfortable with it it doesn't make me but I am uncomfortable with it because um, you know, she ends up apologizing when it's really him, and He's you an see, and and you see this, you see the cycle of abuse completely play out. Mm-hmm. You know, you see this. He's intentionally trying to keep her on edge. Um, there's this kind of honeymoon to bring it back around. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and and so it just was really. 
you know, just seeing that play out was, ugh. Well, and it contains multitudes because on the one hand, I mean, it, it demonstrates that Fabian is actually a very, very complicated character in her own right, because on the one hand, she knows what she wants and she, she, she seizes what she wants. But on the other hand, she, she, she apologizes to him. She stays with him, um, pr- probably out of some choice, but in, at the end of the day, she, she does apologize to him. So. Well, I would, I don't know how much choice she sees she has, but maybe. Well, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I think that she, I, w- I was more referring to her agency and mm-hmm. like you know, her willingness to call him a fuckhead and, and you know, yeah. play around with him a little bit. Um, on, the, on the racism end, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, that, well, first off, I, I think that the, the film treats racism in much the way that it treats violence, that it is a fact. In other words, it's 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 just part of of reality, and mm-hmm. I think that well, if we if we're on the one hand, I think we should be scandalized by that. We should be scandalized by the just the overabundant use of of, of that the, the N word in the film, and 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 you know the way white people especially see black people uh, in the film. Um, and, and, and on the other hand, um, if we're so scandalized that we can't watch the film because of that, or we can't accept the fact that, you know, these characters are racist and, 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 and that's part of who they are as, as flawed human beings, then I wonder if we're living in a fantasy world where racism doesn't really exist. Mm. I wonder yeah. if in that sense, we, we put ourselves into that colorblind society, which doesn't really exist. Because what, one of the things that I think that, that this film can be credited uh, for is, and, and I don't mean that in the sense that it did it when no other film would, I mean that in the sense that it, 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 it very much so honestly acknowledges the reality that we don't live in a colorblind society, mm-hmm. right? Well, and what's also interesting, again, some of the reading I was doing pointed out that you have friendships that are, you know, you have Butch and Marcellus, you have Vincent and Jules, who each work, you know, it's, there's, there is a mixing of races going on, which is not redemptive in and of itself, but it's, you know, it's, it's interesting that on the it's kind of like what you said about on one level it exists but on the other but if you look closer you know it's like it's like what you were talking about in the in the sexism and Mm -hmm. women's agency that you know on one level sure it's portrayed a certain way you know we see the overt we see the confederate flag we see the boy the n-word the all of that and yet on some functional level people work together they get out of difficult situations they genuinely care for one another yeah there's there's a very real genuine friendship between jules and vince and there's a very real genuine friendship between butch and at the end between butch and or at least respect Mm -hmm. yeah marcellus kicks him out of his life i i think there's a kind of forgive i think i think that's sort of like what i imagine forgiveness to be between say uh, two people who just, for whatever reason, can't and won't ever get along, right? Mm-hmm. Perhaps a forgiveness, a genuine forgiveness between um, a, a person and, and, and their abuser. In other words, yes, uh, we're cool, but you need to leave. I can't yeah. deal with you in my life right now. And so, if I and, see you again, we're going to have problems. Yes. <laughs> um, 
So if you were writing a sermon on this film, and boy, howdy, what kind of sermon would that be? <laughs> I was going to say, what would I do? What would I do with this one? Oh, um, I'd love to go to that sermon. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I think there's definitely some stuff that you could do with the story in Genesis, you know, the Adam and Eve story to some extent. I think there's... Um, we've talked about Paul and his experience on the road to Damascus. You could, you could do some things with that. Um, even just the conversation around miracles, mm -hmm. you know, what is a miracle? Cause that was something that really stuck out to me is the perspectives on what happened. God with got the, involved. Yeah. Whether he stopped so, the bullets at all. Sorry. I interrupted. Yeah, no, you're fine. And so, and, and how we see, things you know do we do we see the miraculous in the ordinary you know because again this is about how we interpret something it's the meaning that we make you know and so i think talking in that regard that's probably where i would go you know it's interesting i think i would i i think i would go gnostic <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. and uh, i am not a gnostic but um i i do appreciate that there is a sense in which we create a false god out of mm -hmm. uh, we Christians create a false god, uh, and and you know people of genuine faith of all denominations do this. We create, we read scripture, whatever our scripture may be, and then we create a false god out of out of our view of scripture, right? And that's mm -hmm. our idol, and then we project our own our own sense of perfection onto that idol. Um, but uh, right. to me, the 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 point of the story, well, it's it's, my, it's the point that I I read into the story is um, the conversion that mm -hmm. you know laying aside the false idol, laying aside the path of violence and justification for our sins, and walking the earth until yeah. God puts us where God wants us to be. <laughs> and notice how that looks like being a bum to someone who is uninitiated, to someone who is yeah. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Well, and then, okay, so I'm, I'm looking at the whole arc of this story, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine the set of circumstances that you have been through the worst night into day of your life, and you decide you're, you're finally think you're done. And so you're like, okay, let's go get breakfast. And then the freaking diner gets <laughs> held hostage or robbed, you know, and, and it's just imagine the set of circumstances that leading up to that, you know, I, I can understand where he would just be like, you know what, I'm tired of this. <laughs> I'm just so done. And, you know, he's kind of showing pumpkin, you know, if you want to go down that path, here's where you here's where it ends up. Mm hmm. Well, yeah, and and the 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 scene at the diner is a kind of mass, I think, mm -hmm. a kind of holy Eucharist. Because and and it's interesting, they go through the entire conversion experience. Both Vince and and uh, Jules walk the conversion experience. Of course, Jules carries it through to conclusion. Vince returns um, to his own his old suit wearing um, mm -hmm. work as a as a as a hitman and is killed for it by Butch, oddly enough. And, uh, um, but, but uh, they, they go through this whole conversion experience and then they go to mass, they go to breakfast and share yeah. a meal together. Communion, Eucharist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, what movie are we watching next? 
So next we're doing uh, something a little different. Um, we are going to do a, uh, our, our, our friend, the host of, uh, of Faith in What Resonates is going to, as, as it is her choice next, and she has chosen Into the Woods. And so all four of the uh, uh, um, uh, New Faith, New Media um, producers are going to get together and discuss the musical Into the Woods. And I'm very excited because it's one of my favorite musicals. Well, we thank you so much for joining us today. It really helps us if you like and subscribe and comment on our Facebook discussion page, if you share the podcast with others. We're really trying to build a community of people who are excited about faith and movies, and we are interested in in that opportunity. If you are able to give in any way, our Patreon it helps us to do that. And our first step is going to be building a website where we can host all of our content and, and connect with you as the listeners. And we ask you to check out all of our other new faith, new media websites um, or podcasts, rather faith and what resonates as well as others that are coming up such as, um, Oh, I'm blanking on the names. Cut this out, Wesley. <laughs> and and we'll dice. edit yeah, faith in the dice and breaking bread with Saint Sparkle Bear. So, um, we hope that you will join us and connect us in many different ways. We welcome your feedback to help us to have these conversations. And um, if we have stretched you and made you think, if we've made you feel something, we want to hear from you. So, get in touch with us. And until next time, we'll see you in the theaters. <laughs>